I'm Feeman Rowe. Welcome to Live Like You Are Dying, the podcast. My personal journey of living with terminal cancer has led me to believe that most of the perceived problems and worries going on in our heads could be changed by embracing the simple fact that we all only have one life and that none of us are promised another day on this beautiful planet we all call home, regardless of our current health status. After all, Would you seriously stay in the job you hate or the relationship that makes you miserable if you truly thought your life could end next year? Hell no, you'd be out doing the things that make you happy and you certainly wouldn't be worrying about your dress size either. In this groundbreaking podcast, I interview people who are living incredible lives, not despite adversity, but because of it. Through their inspiring stories, you too will uncover the life-changing magic of living like you are dying. Your journey to a more connected, joyful and compassionate life starts right now. Today I'm joined by Courtney Carver. Courtney is the author of Project 333, The Minimalist Fashion Challenge That Proves Less Is So Much More, and soulful simplicity. She has been sharing her journey back to health and adventures in simplicity, becoming debt-free and living and dressing with less on her blog, Be More With Less, since 2010. Thank you so much for Well, thank you for the invitation. Could you tell listeners a bit about yourself? Sure, well, you you covered the short story for sure. <laughs> I started uh, my blog, Be More With Less, in 2010 um, after I had spent a few years really changing my life, <clears throat> kind of starting from scratch, if you will, after being diagnosed with multiple sclerosis in 2006. I decided to figure out, if at all possible, <clears throat> how to live well with MS. And it, it led to more change than I had anticipated and a lot of simplicity over many years. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, it was, I, I guess when I went into this diagnosis, I was living what you might call the typical American dream. So working all the time, spending more than I made. I was in a tremendous amount of debt. Um, I owned a home that I, you know, could make the monthly payments on, but there wasn't very much left between that and the, the loans that I had and the credit card debt. But I really thought this is just the way it is. And I'm stuck in this job because I have all this debt. And so kind of, this is my life as stressful as it was. And after my diagnosis, I had to step back and, and really think about how I wanted to live and what changes I would have to make to, to be healthy. That was my primary concern. But by asking those questions and considering new ideas, I realized that not only could I be healthier, but I could be a lot happier and more intentional about how I was moving forward. And thank you. Have you still got me? I do. Yep. Sorry. Um, my dodgy signal in a little cottage. Um, 
I love that. And I've love I've read Social Simplicity, your first book, three times. And every time I read it, I take stuff from it because I think there's just so much in there of what you were chatting about there that we think that there's no escape or that so many people listening will be in that caught in that cycle of, you know, I can't get out of this because I'm in debt and stuff. How was that experience for you? Well, I was certainly one of those people. I mean, I had gone into debt when I was 18, get my hands on a credit card. I was in debt with that and student loans and then a car loan. And so by the time I got out of school, the only thing I could consider when taking a job was how am I going to pay my bills? (laughs) Not really thinking that I had created that problem, but instead just this is the way of the world. Now I have to get a job that I probably am not going to like to pay down this debt for stuff that I don't even remember what it was. Um, It's not like I was out there shopping and buying meaningful things. And I think for me, just being willing to consider that things could be different was such a, a huge shift. And that came from hearing other people's stories. So hearing that people were living well with MS, even though my doctor who I fired Uh, months later after working with her told me that, you know, my, it wasn't a question of when I would decline, but just how quickly I would decline. Um, That's, that was kind of her belief system. And I didn't want that to be mine. And from that to debt, you know, listening to somebody like Dave Ramsey to, to his radio show and listening to stories of people who paid off thousands of dollars in debt or hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. And they sounded kind of like me, you know, they weren't in extraordinary circumstances where it wasn't something I couldn't consider for myself. And so hearing those stories was so important. And I, I mean, that's one of the reasons I wanted to write soulful simplicity was yes, to share my story, but also so that other people could see themselves in that story and say, hey, if she can do it, I can do it. And what's really beautiful about that book is you you intertwine your personal story and you make the steps really simple for people to follow. And I found one of the things, um, which I know was advice that you got from that radio show, was about the saving $1,000 first. And I found that really, really interesting because I never thought of debt in that way that you would save you know that security money first I found that really really useful I know I always thought why am I going to save a thousand dollars when I have to put that towards my debt or my bills or more important things but having that security like it's almost not a math thing it's a mind thing so it really changed the way I thought about things, because with a thousand dollars in savings for the first time in my adult life, I had this, I guess, a little more security that if the car breaks down or the washing machine needs repair or something happens where a medical instance where I need some extra money, I'm not going to have to, you know, fall into the hands of collectors because I can't pay my bills because I'm doing these other things. And it's not like I saved $1,000 overnight um, by any means. It was something that I kind of chipped away at and put, put that money towards. But 
all of the changes that I made, including that one, were very straightforward and pretty simple and and slow. They weren't like my typical attempt at change before, which had been, you know, fast and furious overnight. Let's do it. Let's go big or go home. But what would really happen is I would go big and then get really burnt out and be back to my original starting place. And feeling worse so, about yourself, probably. Definitely. And, and really, you know, questioning myself when it came to make another change so I knew, you know, not only did I have to change, make a lot of changes in my life, but I had to change the way I changed. So <laughs> I had to really rethink that equation and, and slow seems to work better than fast when it comes to sustainable, meaningful change. And I think that it's like a revolution, isn't it? Because it's the complete opposite of what we're taught. We're taught all these quick fixes, this buy it now, this do this and something else in your book when you talk and I'm worried I'm going to get the term that you use wrong so please correct me but it's about the stacking the changes in your morning routine yeah the habit That's stacking it, yeah and it's just amazing because yeah. no one's ever talked about it like that could you explain that a bit uh well I will definitely explain the habit stacking but I think it's pretty clear why we haven't been talking about this method of change and that is because it's not exciting. It's not sexy. It's not selling um, products or magazines. You know, it's not exciting enough, I guess, because you really have to put the time in to see the results. Mm -hmm. So for me at this stage, it's very exciting. Um, but I think that we've resisted encouraging other people to find their own path and their own pace because we can't figure out how to make it newsworthy or something like that. But back to the habit stacking, uh, the way that I created my morning routine, and, and I think a lot of us do this without even knowing, is by stacking my habits. <clears throat> and that means that, for instance, I'll give it, put it as an example within the morning routine, I would write journal for five minutes. And then afterwards I would meditate for five minutes and then I would go for a walk and each habit was stacked on the other so that I didn't have to give them a lot of thought. I didn't have to be motivated to do each one. I only had to gather up the, the energy for one. And we do that when we, for instance, take a shower, maybe we use shampoo and then conditioner and then body soap, and then we towel dry that's a habit stack. And I find if we can find little pockets during the day of ways to stack our habits, we are more likely to stick with things because we only have to think about one, but really it's a bunch of little habits. And it makes it more manageable. I think, you know, it's right. What you say is the big change isn't sexy enough, but it's also, it's on a, sorry, the big set, the big change is the sexy thing. And these little changes aren't, but it's, the big change can be so unachievable. But when you, when you detailed it in the habit stacking, I was like, there's no more excuses. It's so simple. It's just five minutes and you just, you just add it. Yeah. And it builds and grows slowly, but it sticks. So really by the time your, your big fast and furious change is burning out, 
you might just be reaching the, the place that you want to be with your new habit stacking change. And it's pretty remarkable. Yeah, I think it's amazing. It was one of the, one of my favorite things of the book, actually, because I was like, oh, the, it's just so, it's so simple that even when you're lost or even, you know, I think myself, my reflect on my own journey when I'm unwell, I can still do five minutes. You know, it doesn't have to be all the, you know, all the big things. I wanted to ask. Yeah, and that, oh no, when you go. I was just going to say that was so important to me because I wasn't in what I would consider the perfect place to make a change. And I mean, we never are really, but I was sick. I didn't feel well. I was scared. I was deep in debt. Um, my life wasn't simple by any means when I started making these changes. So I didn't really have the energy and the bandwidth to, to do the, the bigger changes right away. And I'm so glad that I was able to figure out small ways to move forward. I mean, because now it's been, let me think. Uh, I'm trying to think how long it's been, like 13 years or something since my diagnosis. And I feel better than I did prior to the diagnosis. Wow. That's quite a statement. That's, and so I think that's so inspiring for people that are listening, people that are ill and also people that are well as, as well, you know, that these little changes, they do add up. Definitely. Something I wanted to ask you about, um, which really struck me in your book, and I referenced to my husband, it's the poor man, was when you said <laughs> that you're, when you moved out of your house and you said that your husband for a couple of months every Saturday would be like, well, guess what I'm not doing today? And he would say either the gardening or painting a wall or doing this because I think I notice with my own husband that he works in his job and then at the weekend he's like oh I need to do the garden and I'm like but that's you know it's a choice like we could live somewhere that didn't have the garden and could you talk about that because I just think that was really powerful how you brought in how it affected both of you these changes well of course they they changed our whole family really and a lot of the decisions had to be made as a family or definitely between my husband and I. And that included downsizing. I mean, we had bought our home as you do uh, a, a bigger house than we needed for sure. Big yard, garage, attic, storage shed in the backyard, all the, all the things and, and financed it, all of it, a hundred percent of it. <clears throat> and not in a very, a very, um, I guess, good, good loan situation. But I, at that time, I really just thought, again, this is just how we go. And when it came down to, and this was, you know, several years after the diagnosis and after decluttering our home to the point where we had empty rooms, we really started to ask ourselves what we wanted our life to be like and how we wanted to spend our time. And, just because the maybe the smartest financial thing would have been to stay in the home another five or 10 years. You know, a lot of people recommended that we wait until the quote unquote market turned around, but we just kept saying, well, do we want to talk about how we want to live in 10 years or how we want to live now? How do we want to live now? And the answer was that we didn't want to spend our weekends 
you know, mowing the lawn and replacing the roof and taking care of all the things that come with home ownership. And we decided to downsize. <clears throat> and a lot of people were worried, especially for my husband, since I was kind of spearheading this simplicity movement in our family. And they would ask me, you know, well, what about Mark, my husband? And I would say, what about Mark? We're, we're in this together. Like we're having these conversations together and deciding what's best for us. And just because what's best for us doesn't look like what's best for other people doesn't mean we're not on the right path. And he definitely, I guess, proved that in saying those things, in saying that, you know, how happy he was to be able to spend the weekend skiing or hiking and not working on the house, not worrying about all of the things with, with homeownership. So we downsized to a place that was less than half the size of our home. And at the time that was, I think that was in 2012 or 2013. So our daughter was finishing up her last year of high school and we had a dog and two cats. And it was, uh, like I said, less than half the size. And it was wonderful. I mean, just right from the get-go. And we've continued to stay in small apartments. Uh, And as we talk and have conversations about maybe moving one day and and living in a home again, it always comes back to how do we want to live our lives? Not what's, what's the closet size or what's the square footage. And when that does come up, it's more like, we want it to be small, mm-hmm. definitely smaller. We don't want a lot to take care of. I love something you kept saying there was, how do we want to live our lives? Because I think, you know, from school age and moving onwards, it's always about, you know, getting the job that pays the most and getting the house that's the biggest and having the fanciest car. And no one ever says, but how do you want to live your life? And it's so simple, yet it changes everything. It's interesting. Um, my niece re- recently graduated from school, from college, and my daughter graduated a few years ago. And I just remember hearing people ask both them and me as a parent questions like, well, what, it, what kind of job is she going to have and how much is she going to make? And wh- like, why are these the first questions that we're asking? And I understand that money is necessary uh, and that it can provide a lot of wonderful things, but that that's the first thing that we're asking our children and young adults when they're going into the world, it, it's a little disconcerting because really the question is, how, how do you want to live your life? How do you want to enjoy your life? Uh, yeah. Um, I think that's such an important message. And it's that thing of when you meet new people, it's always, what do you do for a living? So like, what is your job? How much do you earn? It's, we seem to have, we use that as a, as a measure of worth for people. It's never how happy are you? How much joy is there in, in your life? And I think what you do with your writing and your blog and on social media and your books is you really challenge that and make people think, but in a really, in a beautiful and heartening way by demonstrating how it's changed your own life. Yeah, it's the, I think it's really such a better way and, I think we don't just resonate it resonate with it mentally but physically too like I think our our bodies change in proportion to how much stress we carry 
uh, which includes all of those things. Like how much are we comparing? And, you know, when you said we ask each other what we do, it's how we measure ourselves Mm -hmm. more than measure other people. I think, you know, it's how we decide how we're going to stack up and these measuring systems that we have for our own self-worth and satisfaction are crazy. I mean, I remember I used to measure my days based on my to-do lists. So if I got enough done, then I had a good day. And if I didn't get enough done, I didn't have a good day. And somewhere in my head, I'm sure I was telling myself, you, you know, why can't you keep up? What's wrong with you? Uh, but that, that's definitely in the past for me. I don't measure who I am by what I accomplish. Uh, it's, it's just not a healthy way to, to do things. And I think it really holds you back from even accomplishing the things you want to accomplish because you're so tied, that's so tied to the end point, um, that you don't shift direction when you have to shift direction or should shift direction. And you only consider this like finish line instead of everything that's happening along the way. Yeah. You're not experiencing the journey. It's like you say, it's the destination. It's the end point, isn't it? Typically when we're talking about goals and accomplishments and resumes and all of the things that we normally measure ourselves with. And I can hundred percent relate to that. I, I was in that um, pursuit of success. I pushed myself at university. I had a PhD by the time I was 26. I was working hard. I was commuting, earning all this money. And I was miserable. I was so miserable because I always wanted the next thing. And I was in that same cycle you talk about of like spending money. And I think I was spending money to try and find the happiness I wasn't getting from the thing I was promised would give me happiness. And it becomes this horrible, vicious circle that I think myself, if I hadn't got sick, I dread to think I don't think I'd have stepped out of it. It took for me that crisis point. Yeah, I I think the same for myself. I'm not, I mean, obviously I don't know what would have happened. Uh, I'd like to think that I wouldn't have naturally evolved into this place, but I don't know because it was never enough for me. The the more I made, the more I wanted to make, mm-hmm. the more I purchased, the more I wanted to purchase. And I would even say things like, well, I work so hard. I deserve these things. Mm-hmm. Yep. And now I know I deserve so much more than that. Like that was, I was, I was really shooting low. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Something I want to talk about, um, cause it's a thing that I found out about you through um, and that I think you've become very well known for um, is Project 333, um, which is phenomenal. Could you talk to people about that, please? Sure. So Project 333 is a fashion challenge, a minimalist fashion challenge that I created in 2010. And it's an invitation to dress with 33 items or less for three months including clothing, jewelry, accessories, and shoes. And it was a challenge, again, that I started for myself because through all my simplifying, the one place I never wanted to simplify was my closet. And when it was time, uh, because the simpler the rest of my home got, the more obscene my closet was, when it was time, I decided that I, my slow and steady approach to change was probably not going to be the best for the closet. And I decided to create this challenge just to see 
what enough really meant to me. Um, and also because I was still really overwhelmed by all the choice that I had in the closet, um, by, you know, mornings that I would spend trying on outfit after outfit and still never really feeling comfortable in what I was wearing. You know, am I wearing the right thing or what are they going to think of this? Do I look powerful enough? Do I look creative enough? Do, you know, I was always counting on my clothes to make me look a certain way, to feel a certain way and to have other people perceive me in a certain way. So, uh, I definitely had a lot to learn in that department and I learned it by dressing with less. Now I didn't get rid of everything else. I just got it out of sight for those first three months. And I honestly thought this would be a three month experiment and then I would move on. But a, it provided so many amazing benefits for me that I decided to continue and B a lot of people really resonated with the challenge and tried it themselves. And I mean, now it's, practiced around the world. It's really interesting how this little fashion challenge that really has very little to do with clothes and fashion has made such a, an impact on people. And it is, it's, it's that thing, it's so simple, but it is so much more than the fashion, isn't it? Because it challenges the, when you describe it, that we, it's almost like we put our sense of worth in our clothes of how will people perceive us? And I've definitely been in that, like how you dress for the meeting and then how you dress for the social thing and then how you dress for meeting the new person and all of this. And it's just all nonsense. It's nonsense. It's so exhausting as yeah. well. And I've just learned that like what I wear is one of the least interesting things about me. And I'm not going to spend my time and resources, including money and energy and attention on something that I can simplify to the point where I don't have to think about it at all. And now I can focus my energy on traveling or writing or spending time with my family or whatever I want to do. But if I think about the time, money, energy, and attention and emotion that I gave to my clothes for decades, ugh, it's terrible. It, it was just a lot. <laughs> Yeah, and so many of us have been there. And it's that, I think you mentioned it as the decision fatigue, isn't it? It's taken, that takes decision, that takes part of our decision making through the day. And then we've exhausted that just before we've even left our bedroom. Yeah, and it's not just the deciding what to wear, but it's the getting the new outfit for the holiday or for the um, interview or for the event. Like I always had a reason to buy something new. So I was making decisions about what I should buy, what I should spend, what looks good, what doesn't look good, what fits. I mean, it was just really nonsense. And now it's so simple. And granted, I've been doing this for a really long time, um, 10 years by the time this interview airs. Uh, so it's not something I give a lot of thought to anymore. And I don't wear 33 different items or include 33 different items every three months. A lot of the items transfer over from season to season. And then when something doesn't fit anymore for whatever reason or is in poor condition, then I'll replace it. What would be your advice to someone listening who's having a freak out about the idea of 33 items? Because I know you say in your book, <laughs> people freak out when you say the word that shoes are included. Um, yes. So what would be the advice you would give to someone? 
Well, a couple things. So first of all, I think a lot of us are practicing Project 333 without even knowing it. Um, you know, just really think about what you've worn over the last month. Chances are you've got your favorites and you're wearing those more often than a lot of other pieces in your closet, but you're faced with those other pieces every single day. And whether you recognize it or not, they are heavy. They come with a lot of, um, I guess, emotional decisions and thoughts like, did I spend too much money on that? Why doesn't that fit me anymore? Why don't I ever wear that? Because so-and-so gave it to me and I feel bad that I don't. It's so heavy, these clothes that we don't wear. And I didn't recognize it until they were gone. And I would just say, be open to that idea that once they're out, you'll really be able to feel that relief and that lightness. Um, so number one, you're already doing it to a certain extent, but also three months is just three months. Mm -hmm. I mean, it goes by so fast. It's not 30 years. So try it for three months. There's no permanent decisions that you have to make in terms of what should I donate my stuff or sell my stuff. You just box it up. Don't look at it for three months because then when you do you, by having that separation, you'll really have a better understanding of what is a good fit for your body and your lifestyle. And you'll know what you want and need in that closet. And that I started doing it. That's what I loved about it. When you said about the lifestyle was I was always buying clothes that I thought kind of embodied the lifestyle I wanted. And then I didn't wear them because that wasn't the lifestyle I lived. And it, it almost allowed me to see the clothes I needed and the lifestyle I had and the things that I enjoy doing. So when you say it's so much more than clothes, like that's so true because it, it just shows you so much more about different aspects of your life. Of course. And that helps you ask those questions about other areas of your mm -hmm. home. So kind of what you were describing, you know, this aspirational shopping or ownership where we, we buy things and keep things hoping that this will be our life one day. Like we have a, I'm trying to think of an example, like a, a juicer, but we never make juice mm -hmm. or whatever it is. Uh, and then we, but we keep that thing and then we beat ourselves up for not using it. But we're, what we're, we're really doing is kind of beating ourselves up for not having this life that we think we should have, but maybe it's not the life that you want at all. Yeah. So that it, it is really interesting how much of our stuff is tied to our um, our thinking. And I think once you know that and you see that, it's so much easier to get rid of stuff. So much easier, yes. And once you see, for instance, that 33 items is enough, you realize how much happier you can be with less. And that makes it so much easier for other to let go in other areas of your home. Yeah, it ripples out. And I think something I wanted to mention um, that you covered, which was really helpful for me when I was clearing out, was when it's when you have an item that's expensive and you don't want to get rid of it. And I think the words you used was that you've paid enough. You don't need to pay with your emotions and your time and, and all of this. That's right. Well, I had to work through that process because there were things that, wow, did I spend too much money on? And I would keep them anyway, whether it be a pair of shoes that really hurt my feet, but because I spent so much money on them, I was determined to wear them or an outfit that didn't, really didn't fit me at all or that I had no occasion to wear. 
But every time I saw it, I just kept thinking, I'm continuing to pay. Now I'm paying with the space in my closet. I'm paying with my time to take care of the item. I'm paying with my you know, energy and mindset. And I'm also paying with my emotion because I feel really crappy that I still have this. And it just dawned on me, you know, I, I've paid for this already with my money. <laughs> yep. I've paid for it for too long. That's enough. I've paid enough. It's gone. And I love that because for me instantly, that just got rid of so much stuff <laughs> because yeah. it just, it, it gives you permission that, yeah, I, it's cost me enough. Yeah. And I think sometimes we'll get hung up on things like that. Like, oh my gosh, I have to get my money back. I have to sell this. And I mean, with clothes, that's a challenge for sure. Mm. Is it really worth your energy to try to sell it or would it be better just to donate it? Um, And I've got some kind of some parameters that I share in the new book about when to sell, when to donate, when to save and when to, yeah, just give it away. Could you tell us about the new book, which I'm very excited about? Sure. Well, the new book is called Project 333, named after the challenge. And it's really a deeper dive answering questions that I've gotten over the years um, and sharing the things that I've noticed along the way, because it, it does sound scary to some people at first to go to 33 items And I think we'll get hung up on that and not move forward. But this book really unpacks all of the the fears and concerns that you might have, the questions, and I think kind of opens up a door for people to give it a try without the the concern of, I'm not going to be able to do this. And where where will people be able to get that book? And when is it going to be out? So it'll be out on March 3rd, which is 3-3, which I love Aww, <laughs> for love a that. launch date. Um, I was very grateful that my publishers uh, went with that date. And it will be available where books are sold. So it, I don't know exactly where, but it should be on all the major booksellers online Brilliant. and then in local bookstores. And in terms of different countries, I don't know yet, but I hope it'll be available wherever you are and you're listening. But If not, there is a site called Book Depository. I think it's bookdepository.com, and they offer um, free shipping worldwide, so you can order it from there wherever you are. Wow, I didn't know that. That's really good to know. I didn't either. I know. I thought that was such a a nice offering, so I wanted to mention that. Um, I wanted, so I'm conscious of time with the podcast. I wanted to ask you, um, so something, so the podcast is about living like you're dying and it's something you've talked about a lot and that you've, you've spoken about how um, your decisions have been around how you want to live your life. And also when you talked about um, selling your house, you didn't want to make a decision based on something that would be good for you in 10 years time. You wanted to make a decision. What was based on how would serve you now? And a question I ask everyone I interview Um, which I was hoping you could answer as well, is if you knew that your life was going to end tomorrow, how would you spend your life today? I mean, I'd have to say that I would spend it the way I'm spending it because I just know that tomorrow is not guaranteed for any of us, whether we know something is going on inside our bodies or not, um, and all of the external things that we cannot control. So, and I've thought about this before, you know, wondering if I would 
jet to a, a private island or do something really extreme and different. Um, but I feel really good today. And I don't think I would change that under any circumstances. Courtney, I think that's the most perfect answer I've ever had. Someone asked me recently, how do you know if you're living like you're dying? And I said, but we will answer that question by saying you would do nothing differently. And I never thought I was going to have someone who would give me that answer. So I'm so grateful. Um, And it's just amazing that you're living that and prove to people that you can live this, this life that's meaningful for you and that it's, it's in our power, isn't it? It definitely is. I mean, there's enough outside of our control and outside of our power, but how, how we choose to see the world and be in the world that is up to us. It's amazing. Is there anything else before we finish up that we've not covered that you'd like to talk about? I don't think so. I've loved our conversation. Um, Maybe I would just add that circling back to Project 333, while I I don't typically share, you know, exactly what I'm wearing, because I don't think that whatever I'm wearing is best for you. It's not my goal to sell you clothes. Um, I do share um, stories and pictures and and things like that on Instagram under both at Be More With Less. And by the time the book comes out, we'll have an Instagram account called at Project 333 which will give you some visual examples that I think can be really helpful. Amazing. And you've also got a blog as well. I do at uh, bemorewithless.com. And what I love is you send, um, I love my weekly email that comes uh, from joining your mailing list because every time it's, you detail stuff in such a simple way, but what I mean is that I'm like, oh, I could change that in my life now. Or I could reflect on that. Like it's, you've got a really beautiful writing style. So people can sign up to your mailing list through your blog, your website as well. And you run courses through your website as well, don't you? I do. And I appreciate you saying that about the, the newsletter, because I'm always trying to think about how we can close the gap between inspiration and action, because we're just over-inspired. I mean, every every second there's another little blip or blink or whatever online or in the world of something amazing and interesting and that I want to put my attention towards, but then I forget about it or something else catches my attention. So I think we all have to focus on how we close that gap so that we can put the things that are really meaningful to us into action. And you do that so beautifully. I think I'm trying to remember the words of the recent one, but, and so again, correct me if I'm wrong. It was something around the things you no longer have to say yes to, or the things you can say no to. I've forgotten how it was worded, but it was just, I liked how it gives examples. Have I worded that right? If I got it totally wrong, but you gave examples or things that you don't need to do anymore. Oh, you have it completely right. Yes. That we don't have to do. uh, We always, think we have to do certain things that we're expected to do and the truth is we don't so I guess I'm always just trying to say we can rethink anything we want yeah and it's just the way you did it and the examples I think what was nice and it's really interesting when you say about it's not about inspiring it's about giving actions you could read it and there was something for everyone of like oh wow I don't have to I don't have to do that thing anymore and it yeah, it was just, it's really nice. And I guess what I'm saying to the listeners in a really rambled way is definitely sign up for the mailing list because <laughs> it's you. not like, 
you know, we sign up to so many mailing lists and then our email account can become as overloaded as our houses, but actually yours adds so much value. So that in a roundabout way was what I was trying to say. I appreciate that. Um, and so people can find you on Be More With Less. They can find you on Instagram and your new book is out the 3rd of March and Soulful Simplicity is already available online and in bookstores as well. Courtney, thank you so much for your time. Um, thank you. I'm really grateful for our conversation. The time went too fast. I have so many things to ask you. <laughs> but um, yeah, thank you so much. I hope you have a lovely day. And you. Bye. I'm Fee Monroe, and you've been listening to Live Like You Are Dying, the podcast. You can follow me on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you haven't yet, then go to your podcast app and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next time for another inspiring interview about living like you are dying. Thank you.